Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Hungary, Myanmar, and a pair of dead fascists to talk about in the See You in Hell segment. First off, starting in the United States, we have news that a film crew was present uh, during a meeting between the leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers prior to the attempted coup last year on January 6th. This meeting occurred on or around January 5th, according to court records, and they had a film crew with them, specifically a documentary film crew. Uh, literally, they thought that what they were doing was something that was worthy of being like preserved in a positive cultural way. You know, they thought that they were recording history here, that they were recording the taking back of government from people whom they perceived to be uh, the illegitimate holders of it, right? Uh, additionally, we uh, know now that there was a detailed plan uh, that was held by the leaders of the Proud Boys, uh, specifically Enrique Tario, uh, that detailed plans to invade government buildings in and around the Capitol. Now, the plan did not actually specify invading the Capitol building, but it did specify invading other government buildings on January 6th. And the existence of this document, a, a detailed written plan about how to do it, is extremely interesting. And the first part, it is a clear indication that there was a conspiracy to conduct this coup. And the word conspiracy is legally important here because it's an important pillar of the prosecution of Tario and several other leaders of the Proud Boys and other extreme right organizations. Two, it begs an important question. Did they come up with this plan themselves or did they come up with it in conjunction with other actors? potentially people who worked for the United States. Now, how that's all going to shake out, we're going to find out over the course of the investigation of this process, uh, which could take years or even decades. Um, but this is an important finding here. This is, this is a detailed plan for how to conduct this attempted coup. Additionally, speaking of people who thought that their participation in the coup was going to look a lot better than it ended up doing, we now know that Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was at the rally that preceded the invasion of the Capitol building. She was there on January 6th in the rotunda. Uh, she says that she didn't invade the Capitol and there's no particular reason to believe that she did, especially considering how effective the doxing strategy has been for those who have actually uh, been found to have entered the building. But this is an important glimpse, right? You know, this is a glimpse into an alternate timeline where leaders of the right wing, the mainstream right wing, you know, th this person is the wife of a Supreme Court justice, where leaders of the mainstream right wing can look at their participation in the coup as evidence of their normal, you know, bona fides as right wingers, you know, uh, a world in which the coup succeeded and they are le the legitimate government. And this provides them with some legitimacy. You know, this provides them with some prestige. Now, there are many members of the right wing who are trying to cash into this anyway, you know, despite the fact that the coup failed. But this particular example is, you know, somebody who possibly stuck out their neck a little bit too far uh, when it came to this participation. Finally, on the January 6th revelations from this week, the company Salesforce, uh, which has an important trove of RNC documents relating to the January 6th attempted coup, says that they're going to have to release them uh, unless a court stops them. Now, the RNC is claiming that this is a partisan investigation on the part of the Democrats, on the part of the January 6th Special Investigation Committee. Uh, but currently, there's no court that's going to stop 
uh, Salesforce from releasing these documents. And this means that it's possible that we could learn uh, some important evidence about the RNC's involvement in planning the coup. Specifically, the documents that Salesforce is releasing uh, are internal documents from the RNC about emails and other mass communications they sent to Republicans regarding the rally that would become the coup uh, back as early as December 2020. So, you know, as Trump is planning for all of these measures to try to stay president. Now, Obviously, the RNC was not saying like, hey, everybody, we need to stage a coup against the federal government. But they were trying to galvanize people. They were trying to get people out there. They were trying to get people ready. They were trying to build up momentum for what the coup would eventually become. And these are the building blocks of a case against the RNC for its involvement in the coup. So, you know, this is this is some important shit right here. Additionally, in the United States, there has been a series of recent investigations on the part of the United States military branches regarding uh, extremism in the ranks of the United States military. Specifically, there's one ongoing in the Marines, uh, which I will talk about when it is finished. However, many other experts have been noting how lackluster the military's response to the growth of extremism and specifically right-wing extremism is in the United States military. But the whole thing, the thing here is that that's the point, right? The United States military cannot investigate extremism in its ranks because they are afraid of what they'll find. Historically, the military, not just in the United States, but around the world, has been a hotbed of right-wing political activity and politicization. And the United States military is just no different here. Um, Currently, the rule in the United States military is that you can be a member, you can just be a member of a white nationalist organization and still serve in the Army, in the Navy, in the Marines, in the Air Force. Uh, you're just not allowed to, quote, actively participate in the organization. Now, their justification for this is that like, oh, well, you know, these organizations reform, they change, you know, we, we, we can't monitor these things uh, wholeheartedly, which is just crap. You know, that's just bullshit. Um that's them covering their asses and saying, like, we don't want to investigate membership and involvement in white nationalists, right-wing extremist organizations in the military because we're afraid of what we're going to find. And speaking of being afraid of what we're going to find, there is a new Secret Service report uh, that just came out last week detailing the growing danger of incel violence. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, incel is a term that certain people uh, predominantly in the extremely online right-wing space, uh, used to refer to people who are, well, they self-identify as, quote, involuntarily celibate. Now, the term originally came from uh, a queer blogger, um, but it has now been taken up almost exclusively by men, and specifically young men, specifically young men who use their experience of not having had people date them as the origin of their politics. And their politics is specifically anti-feminist, uh, it's misogynistic, and it's anti-queer, and it's racist often generally. Um, so this sort of like incel universe of politics is one of the ways in which people enter the extreme right wing from the internet primarily. Uh, so these are Again, primarily young men whose anti-feminism is the, the guiding force behind their politics and it's justifying the violence that they participate in. And by violence, I mean murder. Uh, there have been many very prominent 
right-wing attacks specifically targeting women as women in the last several years. Uh, some of the most prominent are Elliot Roger back in 2014, uh, who attacked a sorority and fraternity in um, Santa Barbara, California. Uh, but there have been several others, uh, including relatively recently an attack on a yoga studio by a male supremacist, uh, a person who believed himself, believed his being a man to be justification enough for him to be able to get whatever he wants from women. And he used that ideology in order to justify violence, specifically in his case, uh, against women whom he perceived to be attractive, but not interested in him. Now, that is the supposed organizing principle for incel politics, is a, a perception of themselves as being downtrodden or deprived because of their gender. Uh, they believe that they are entitled to women and entitled to women's bodies, and they engage in violence because of this. And unfortunately, according to this report, um, there is no reason for us to believe that this kind of violence will subside in the United States anytime soon. Moving away from the United States to Hungary, there was a major rally this week with Prime Minister Viktor Orban regarding his country's non-intervention in the Ukraine war. Um, now, Orban's involvement with Putin is an entire other story. But the important thing here is that Orban is trying to use his diplomatic position, his neutrality in this crisis, as a as a platform for his upcoming election, the election that he is facing uh, next month. So uh, I'm mostly mentioning this to remind you that uh, one of the most important right-wing figures in the world today, Viktor Orban, is facing an election next month. Uh, so we're going to have to see how his neutrality regarding Ukraine plays out. Finally, in news, there is a the first comprehensive United Nations human rights report on the military government of Myanmar uh, has detailed what we unfortunately already knew about that government, uh, that they have engaged in air raids, in attacks on civilians, uh, specifically in the use of military weaponry against dissidents. Uh, the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights uh, has been reporting on this, and they've released their first official report regarding it uh, after the coup last year. According to the leader of the UN High Commission on Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, who is the former president of Chile, uh, many victims were shot in the head, burned to death, arrested arbitrarily, tortured, or used as human shields by the right-wing government uh, against retaliation by rebels. Uh, unfortunately, none of this is particularly new to Myanmar and is a repeat of the behavior of the military government of the late 20th century. Finally, closing out this week, as I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we got a two-for-one. Uh, the first is from Chile, and we're talking about uh, Jorge González von Mares, a Chilean Nazi. And now, uh, the name should be a tip-off, right? Von Mares. Uh, the guy is uh, ethnically German. He was the son of a German immigrant and a Chilean doctor and is most famous because he was the founder of the Movimiento Nacional Socialista de Chile, the National Socialist Movement of Chile, uh, the Nazis. Uh, they were called Los Nazis in Chile, uh, Nazistas. And the group did not really perform particularly well uh, for a right-wing political organization. It got a couple votes in the national elections of 1937, uh, and uh, Vomares himself became the mayor of a moderate town in Chile. They attempted a coup in 1938, uh, a coup which 
failed completely, and Vamares was jailed and eventually pardoned by a later president of Chile in the 1940s uh, and died a civilian on the 14th of March, 1962. Now, we'll see you in hell, Vamares, but the important thing here is that the uh, Movimiento Nacional Socialista de Chile is an important part of the legacy of right-wing politics in Chile, and a lot of Prominent uh, right-wing figures in Chilean history were a part of this movement. Uh, one in particular is Jorge Prat, a right-wing politician who ran for president against Salvador Allende in the 1960s. The other person whose death we are celebrating this week is Fernanek Salsi, uh, the leader of the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian right-wing nationalist movement that is sort of the Hungarian answer to the Nazi party. Uh, Salci was born in Hungary uh, during the time of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and followed his father's footsteps by joining the military. He served for Austria-Hungary during World War I as an infantryman and stayed in the military after the dissolution of Austria-Hungary. He stayed in the military and rose in the ranks and eventually became a relatively well-respected infantry commander. After the war, however, his relatively apolitical professional soldier type affect transformed into that of a right-wing nationalist ideologue. Uh, Salci himself was also a founder of a national socialist party, uh, the Hungarian National Socialist Party, um, but that group was made illegal by the government of Hungary. Uh, he was later jailed for his military, you know, political involvement, and then became the leader of the Arrow Cross Party, which was a right-wing coalition group that was the successor fascist organization in Hungary. Uh, he was made their leader in 1938. During World War II, the Arrow Cross and Salci's uh, affiliates gave aid to the Germans who were not at war with Hungary. Hungary was ruled by a, you know, a sort of associated quasi-fascist organization, uh, a, a state run by Miklos Horthy, who has, I've spoken about previously on this podcast. Uh, but Salsi's more radical right-wing politics went back and forth, uh, illegal or legal, under Horthy. Uh, eventually, as the war was coming to a close and the Soviets were traveling west through Eastern Europe, uh, Horthy looked to the Allies and was eventually removed by the Germans in 1944, who invaded and occupied Hungary, and finally installed Stasi as a, just like a straight-up puppet. Uh, the writing, of course, was already on the wall, though. Uh, the Soviets were already in Hungary, and Stasi was only able to govern for, you know, a little bit over 100 days. He eventually fled to Germany, where he was captured by the Allies, specifically by the United States, and was extradited. He was returned to Budapest, where he was put on trial for war crimes and for high treason, and hanged this week in history, March 12th, 1946. So, uh, for next Salsi, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please send it around to friends, family, and comrades. Leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Share it on your own media. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm Hist of the Right at Twitter. And I can be reached on Gmail at 15minutesoffascism, gmail.com. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all spelled out, all one word. And if you want to contribute to this podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. Again, that's all spelled out, all one word. Finally, I'd like to take this moment to note that next week will be the 100th episode 
of 15 Minutes of Fascism. Thank you all for listening. And in commemoration of this, I'm going to start a new mini-series that will be operating alongside the podcast, uh, released weekly. In commemoration of my 100 episodes, they're going to be uh, 100 Years of Fascism, covering the history of fascism from the 1920s up until the 2020s. Although the first episode will be episode zero, fascism before the 1920s. So stay tuned. All right, I will talk to you next week. Thank you.